Welcome to Storehouse Dallas. It, this was, the, the, I, first off, I just, I've said it a thousand times, I love you guys, John, Tracy, the whole team here, we love you, hosting a, our baby. Uh, we have three beautiful daughters, and we had a son in 2012, we named him Josiah Nash Russell, after an intercessor named Daniel Nash, who was an intercessor with Charles Finney during the Second Great Awakening in upstate New York. For about a seven-year period, this man would forerun Charles Finney's revival campaigns and would labor in intercession. He was a hidden intercessor, and they would win the battle in the heavenlies so that Finney's revivals would go forth in power. And Finney connected so much of his success to Nash's intercession. Well, we got so wrecked by this guy's life, we named him Josiah Nash, and he was born in 2012, and on March 16, 2013, I'm in London, England, ministering. Dana takes the family to uh, see a family in Arkansas, and we were living in Kansas City at the time, and she laid him down for a nap, and he didn't wake up. And the last eight years have been that bone-crushing season of a son of promise, God, what is this all about? We had so many prophetic words. So many, what happens when the promise dies and it doesn't look like what you think it's going to look like? And, and it drove us and it drove me into a real intense place of seeking the Lord. And God used Psalm 2 as kind of the backdrop. God taught me how to pray through Psalm 2 in the midst of crisis and chaos. And when you find the devil rage the greatest warfare over your most precious promise. Let me say that again. God taught me how to pray when you find the devil rage, the greatest warfare around your most precious promise. Usually the devil will tell on the thing that you're made for by the rage, by paying attention to the thing that he is raging against. He's usually telling on himself and wherever the enemy is raging is to become the place of the greatest inheritance in your life whether that be marriage or family or finance or whatever that is. And so God taught us how to pray. And so I was in the middle of 2015 praying for my inheritance. Asking me, I'll give nations as your inheritance. And I'm saying, what's my inheritance? Go, what's my inheritance? Because I, I said, uh-uh. I had, uh, you know, for lack of better terms, I'm, I had an H-E-L-L no on my spirit. And, you know, y'all can fill that out. And so <laughs> I want to write a book and call it that. I'm not, you know, we're not, we're not, I'm not going to become a statistic, you know, when you lose a, a kid, the statistics of marriages that don't make it and the break that the warfare around the family is hard. I had a H-E-L-L, no, we're going in and we're going to make the devil pay for this and let's go. And, uh, and so I was in the season of asking the Lord for inheritance and it was in that season that um, a friend said a dream that the church was under siege. And everyone ran into the church as we realized we don't know how to pray in these days. And I walk into the dream smiling, saying, these are the days we've been waiting on. Let's go. And so my friend began to prophesy over me. And he said, Corey, for every one voice of awakening, I'm going to raise up seven voices of intercession. He said it again. For every one voice of awakening, I'm going to raise up seven voices of intercession. And then he said, I've given Lou Engle the Nazarites but now I'm raising up Nasherites. And the Nasherites will be an army of intercessors that they, they will be, they may not be known in the eyes of men, but they'll be famous in heaven. 
and I'm going to, I'm going to hear their prayers. I'm going to hear their cries, and I'm going to send revival in their families, in their cities, and I'm going to answer their prayers. And so when I got that word, I said, this is what I said, give me a hundred million of them, God. That's my inheritance. Give me a hundred million. I don't know where it came from, but it just came out of my spirit. And I said, Lord, you're the accountant, but I'm going to begin to preach this. And I've been preaching it faithfully for the last six years, but mostly in faith. I'm an I'm a intercessor, so I'm like, you know, we'll beat on walls until. And, um, and so my wife got visited in the spring of this last year with Lou in town, and the power of God hit her. She goes into four hours of travail, and we go right into a season of a 21-day fast of asking God, who are the Nasherites? And it was in that season that she goes into a vision one night and sees the army of intercessors that God's going to raise up a whole generation of intercessors. And she goes, Corey, I see them. And I knew it was time to begin to go to the next level of calling and gathering and marking a new generation of intercessors. With this kind of a, a word that's been relegated to a few in a back room. Thankful for the women that have carried the torch for the last 2,000 years. Women taught me how to pray. But there's an intercessor in heaven. It's not a woman. It's not a woman. It's a man. You, you women do the praying while we do the work. You, you anoint our labors. No, he rules as a priest. He rules as a priest. I got conflicting messages in me this morning, but um, that's one of the things I want to talk to you about is intercession, but that's beside the point. Let me keep introducing what we're talking about. The Nasherites is the branding of this intercession. We've been doing it. We've been building, you know, all kinds of different things to rally and to mark them. Well, this is what happened. God put this in my heart. When she got rocked in the spring, it's time to have a gathering, and I wanted to do it here, and through a series of events, I reached out to Tracy and I said, could we do it here? And she just opened up her heart, opened up her, her heart and the house, and the team's been amazing. And you guys hosted a baby here that had been in our hearts for the last, for a long time. And this was the first, and I believe it's the beginning of a movement. I'm not playing. I, I've got a hundred million in my mind. I, and so th I believe that the baby was born. And, and I believe it's only going to begin to grow as we begin to brand a new generation of intercessors. I love worship. I love to gaze and to behold and to sing, but there's, a, there's also a bowl in heaven, not just harps. There's bowls of prayers. And I believe God wants to teach a generation how to pray and how to, how to labor in the spirit and how to contend in the spirit for the breakthrough of God. Jesus forever lives to make intercession. This is his full-time ministry. Jesus is in full-time ministry. He's not in a lazy boy up there. He's sitting on a throne as a king priest, and he's ruling through intercession in the order of Melchizedek, and that's what we've been grafted into. And so I care deeply about this, and so Anyway, that's what we're going after. We've got Corey Russell online releasing courses, hundreds of courses, marking a generation, about to do a three-night online thing with Mike Bickle. We're releasing products and books, but we're just branding, and we're doing this, and I just want to say thank you again, hosting the baby, and, and I, I preached on Friday night, 
two fathers that have marked my life is Mike Bickle and Lou Engle. I said, if Mike Bickle and Lou Engle had a kid, it'd be me. I wrote Mike that. Mike says, I'm praying for you, buddy. I'm praying for you. I said, pray for Dana. I don't know what that kid's going to look like, but uh, Lord's bringing it all together. Um, Anyway, we've got books out there, Teach Us to Pray, Glory Within, and the Gift of Tears. And so God's releasing a gift of tears. I believe we're moving to prayer on the other side of words. I believe he's taking us to prayer on the other side of words, and it looks like tears, tongues, and travail. I believe it's ugly prayings coming back to the church. We're really way too sophisticated, articulate, and pretty. We might be... We might be theologically correct, but spiritually bankrupt and it's not moving anything. And there's a new depth. I believe 2020 is for the purpose of cutting us and bringing us to a depth of prayer that we won't get to with our nice polished American lives in Dallas, Texas. With a little bit of, you know, whatever we call warfare and God's bringing us to a place of new prayer. And it usually happens in the home. It'll be family dynamics. It'll be things that cut you. And God will allow situations to cut you to birth a new prayer out of the inside of you. To awaken a new prayer. And understand, he loves to do it. He's a wrestler. He he waits till Jacob's left alone in Genesis 32, 24. Let him wear himself out for 20 years. Just so he could get him alone. Genesis 32, 24. I don't know if we got the team up here. I'm reading New King James. It says, now Jacob was left alone. That's a a two-decade journey to get a man alone. Once you've come to the end of your own resource, come come to the end of your own resource, ingenuity, wisdom, strategy, gifting, and finally, you're alone. Out of options. Esau's coming after you. Jacob diversifies his portfolio. Send some wives over there, soldiers over there. I don't want Esau to take it all out in one swoop. So he diversifies. And it says, now Jacob was left, a man laid hold of him. It's usually when God gets you alone is when he lays hold of you. And he enters into a midnight wrestle. There it is. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. That man is Jesus. He wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. A midnight wrestle changed Jacob's life. A midnight wrestle, and God just messed with him halfway through the night just to wear him out some more. And then by the end of it, he goes, okay, the sun's coming up. Bang, let me hit your hip. <laughs> and for the rest of the life, Jacob would walk like this. And people ask why. He goes, a midnight wrestle. But that, I don't want to go into the story, but I'm just here to tell you. I think it's Hebrews 11. It says, Hebrews eleven twenty one. Can we put this one up here just because I like to have fun? This is just because I like to party and have fun. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped. I love that leaning on the top of his staff. <laughs> Some of you are only at the half, half time of your story. If Jacob... He went through that season, and then he would enter in, have more children, have Joseph. Then Joseph would, in his eyes, die. 
that 20-something years after that would reunite as Joseph has preserved the future of Israel in Egypt. And not only did Jacob bless and connect with Joseph, he blessed his grandchildren. And he worshiped. Which means, God, you did this. And my favorite part, he leaned on his staff. That's Genesis 32, 24 right there. That's why he was leaning, because he was limping. And some of you are going through your halftime story, and you've come through an intense season, and you got to limp about it. You're carrying the mark of that season. You're carrying the mark of that wrestle of whatever it was. But it's unto something. It's unto generational transfer. It's unto generational blessing. Jacob blessed his grandchildren to a son that he thought was dead for 20 years. Quit assessing where everything's at in the halftime. We're going somewhere. There's a story that God's writing in your life. There's a story. You got to walk it all the way through. So don't give up. Don't quit. And I, I love the fact that he worshiped while leaning. And let the Lord cut you, let him wound you, and let him produce a prayer, a deeper prayer than nice American Christianity in Dallas has given you. Let it produce ugly prayers. Let mascara flow. Let hair shake. Let groans and gutters and cries and the travail and the tears. And get ugly with God. Get vulnerable with God. Don't hide from him. Don't hide from him the pain. And keep putting makeup on a glaring painful wound in your life. Let it cut you like it did Hannah. Hey! Can you put 1 Samuel 1.10 up here? It's not what I'm preaching on this morning, but I just like to party. So 1 Samuel 1. Ooh, that's coming back to the church. She was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. You know what that prayer did? It shifted history. It changed history. A barren woman that played the, I'm good, hallelujah. Hallelujah, I'm good. I'm loved. I'm good. I'm barren. And the dam broke on the inside of Hannah. And she would enter into this bitterness of soul, this prayer mixed with weeping. And this is how powerful it was. I would say one of the greatest prayers in the Bible looked like this. It was so loud it wasn't even audible. No words came out, only her lips moved. Look at the next verse. It says it. She made a vow. She said, oh, Lord, look on the affliction. Give me a child. I'll give him to the Lord. She quit hiding her affliction. She opened it up to God. That's the number one secret about prayer. You don't hide anymore. No more plastic smiles and no more hallelujahs. That ain't moving anything. You stay in your prison. Hallelujah. Let it cut you. And get honest and open up the place of pain to God. If you will look, look. I didn't want to look. I didn't want you to look. I want you to look. And she says, give me a son and I'll give him back to you. It broke control off of her. 
She wasn't going to use the child for her own future. She's going to give him back to God. He's going to be a Nazarite. Look at the next verse. This is crazy, verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli, the high priest, watched her mouth. Here it is, verse 13. It ha she spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Keep this up here. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to see it. The most powerful, which means this, it's not about how loud it is, it's about how deep it is. And the saddest part of that is that the spiritual leadership of the day had gone so long without seeing the spirit of prayer really resting on someone. They thought she was drunk. Fanatical kind of praying is coming back to the church. Because our polished, articulate stuff ain't moving demons. It's not shifting things. If I had time, I'd walk you through the gift of tears and how what happens in four-day delays when Jesus is four days late and the thing dies. And you get two types of prayer in, in John 11. You get Martha. Martha never learned how to sit before the Lord in Luke 10. She's so busy. She got a good heart. She just don't get it. And it's not about Mary versus Martha. It's about Mary before Martha. And every true Mary will become a true Martha. But a Martha that doesn't get her identity by what she does, but by who he is and what he says over her. We need both. I need green rooms and we need prayer rooms. <laughs> All right, you with me? Are y'all good? I don't want to wear you out five minutes in. Martha runs. Jesus, four days late. Everybody say four days late. Four days late. All right, it's not, it's not late. It's perfect time with Jesus. No, he's late. Lazarus died. He really died. <laughs> now it's all perfect timing, brother. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect time in heaven. All right. Look at that. Go ahead and go to about John 11, 20, 21. Somewhere in there. There it is. Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, she went and she met him. I love that. Mary's sitting in the house. Mary's always sitting. <laughs> always sitting. And I just see Martha just pacing. Where's he at? I know he got the letter. We sent him the letter at the beginning of John 11, and he said, "This is for this reason, Son of Man, been glorified. Jesus knew what he was going to do from the beginning of the letter. But what does it do when he gets the letter? You know he got the prayer, and he stays where he's at two more days and lets the situation die. What do you do when he lets it die on purpose? And he knows what he's going to do. He's pacing, and now it's four days late. Jesus shows up. Martha's pacing as soon. She takes off. Look at this, verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. You're going to find Mary say the exact same verse, phrase, 10 verses later. But Martha's going to say it face to face while speaking to Jesus, and it's going to be actually more accusatory in its statement. She's going to make a declaration saying, if you'd have been here, we wouldn't be in this situation. 
But then she's going to revert to what I call plastic, buzzword, T-shirt, bumper sticker, hallelujah, Christianity. She's going to hide her pain behind nice phrases devoid of reality. Verse 22, but even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. That sounds nice. Verse 23, Jesus stone cold. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. That's awesome. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know. Everybody say, I know. Anytime someone says, I know, they don't know. Your I know is an indictment you don't know. And that's what Jesus wanted to cut her is, don't just hide behind nice phrases. Are you letting this cut you? I know he will rise again at the resurrection in the last day. That's theologically correct, but it's wrong. It's not what Jesus was looking for. He wasn't looking for nice theologies about the resurrection one of these days. He's asking, are you cut enough to pull me into this story? Are you going to pull me into this situation? Are you going to hide? Behind your nice little theological walls and protect your heart from offense with God. From the pain of God not moving. See, real faith isn't just plastic hallelujahs. It's God, I know who you are, but I don't understand. I don't understand, and that's what faith looks like, is to refuse to get out of the tension. See, we're not going hyper-optimism of, or hyper-depression. Those are the two ditches. Real faith looks like, I know who you are, but I don't get it. And I ain't going anywhere until I do. Until there is a reconciliation on the inside of this situation in me. I know. Verse 25. I love it. Stone cold. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Because resurrection isn't just coming. Resurrection's here. What are you going to do about it? I love it. Verse 26, he says, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said yes. 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, Son of God, who's coming to the world. The best three phrases from any person I've ever read in my life, but it got nowhere hit a wall called Theological Talks with Jesus while brother's in the grave. Look at verse 28. This is why I know when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary. Everybody say secretly. And she says, the teacher's come and he's calling for you. We don't see Jesus ask for Mary. I think Martha looked in his eyes saying, I ain't getting anywhere here. She learned a secret back in Luke 10 of setting at his feet. She learned how to come out of the chaos when days were easy. Because if you don't learn how to come out of the chaos of today at a 2.0 on the treadmill, when real life situations hit you at an 8.0, 
or the globe starts going into groans and travail for the coming of the kingdom, you're not going to have any equity of learning how to come out of the storm and connect with God in the middle of it. Clark Kent will not turn into Superman when the days change. You are what you've cultivated in days of peace. And it gets exposed in days of tragedy. That's why the wise and the foolish virgins, they looked the same till the cry went out, the bridegroom's coming, and then they look different. You don't know they're different until the season changes, which means what's been on the inside is now manifested on the outside. I can fake you today, but there's coming days where we can't fake each other anymore. <clears throat> All right, she goes. Mary's going to come back to the same spot, say the exact same words, but where Martha stood and said it to him, she's going to fall at his feet and with tears in her eyes is going to say the same phrase. Look at, yeah, there it is. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Verse 33, here it is. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, look at that and just keep this up here. He groaned in the spirit. He groaned in the spirit. She's at his feet. She doesn't get it. And she's not getting out of the tension. Jesus sees her weeping. And I'm telling you, I believe God's calling forth the Marys in this hour. Ones who have learned to sit at his feet and who are going to come to the forefront and who are going to awaken a groan in God and move him into action. He groaned in the spirit. What did that look like? I wonder what John was thinking when he saw that. How did you know Jesus groaned in the spirit? Did he do this? <sighs> <sighs> What did groaning in the spirit look like? I want to awaken a groan in God. But I've found that my ability to awaken his groan is directly connected to the event and the reality cutting me. It has to be my deep calling out to his deep. See, see you can say the exact same words and produce two different responses in Jesus. It ain't about what you say. It's about where you pray it from. I'm finding that the deeper my prayer life goes, don't worry. Don't worry. It gets weirder. I promise. Hey, that's beautiful. Now, just lock in with me. This is, what, this is called how it's supposed to look. And... Two different kind, you can pray the exact same phrase. I've found that the deeper my prayer life goes, the shorter my prayers become. I find it's words like help. I need you. Break in, please. Come. Break in, help. But that help is like 30,000 feet below sea level. And it's praying from a place of depth that you won't get with our nice little plastic phrases, and we're living disconnected. God is inviting the church into a deeper place of prayer. And all of us got storylines that if you allow it, will bring you there. Here we go. 
He groaned in the spirit, verse 34, and now Jesus is in action mode. And he says, where have you laid him? And they said, come and see. And then you see the longest verse in the Bible. For years, I mean, I, I say it a little tongue to mess with you. I'm convinced that was 30 minutes. That's not a sniffle on the way to the tomb. That's not a, yeah, get that out of the way. Think about weeping, the weeping God. Hey! The weeping God. He knows what he's going to do from the beginning. You have to ask yourself, if he knows what he's going to do at the beginning, why didn't he translate to the, to the resurrection of Lazarus? Why didn't he do it? It's because that revelation would have never been seen nor experienced, nor would we have understood the power of that verse in connection to resurrection seasons. We want to translate to our resurrections, sing about it, but nobody wants to go into the valley of weeping because there's something in the valley of weeping. that is used in the economy of God in resurrection. I mean, think about that. I mean, think about how many people you weep in front of. I'm not talking about cry when you feel God. I'm talking about the ugly, vulnerable, hysterical weeping. Usually only one person sees that. Sometimes two. The ugly crying. But our God the one who created the heavens and the earth, steps down into human flesh and surrounded by disciples, by friends, strangers, critics, skeptics. Do you understand that Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus was the final nail in his coffin? The Pharisees said, that's the final blow. We're going to kill him now. And Jesus knows it. And he weeps. And he sobs, and he heaves, and he groans, and he cries, and the ugly volcano comes out of the soul of the God-man. And he invites all of us off of our islands, off of our safe places, off of our plastic forms, saying, come off your islands and find me in the vulnerable room. Find me in the vulnerable room. Find me in the weeping room. It's not about just running around crying a lot more. It's about the revelation of getting cut. Tears is an outward expression of an inward revelation. <clears throat> we could hang out there forever. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said, I'm usually mad at the guy who broke up the, uh, the Bible into all of its places, wrong periods, wrong chapter breaks. He says, but I forgive him for all of them for getting this one right. He said, let it stand alone and let us deal with it. Go ahead and go to the next verse, 36. And now they have enough time to give commentary. Oh, he loved Lazarus. Next guy said, why didn't he get here earlier? 38, Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb, and it was a cave and a stove laid against it. Still groaning. Verse 39, now we get to see faith-filled Martha take away the stone. Now Martha goes, now Jesus, let's get practical. 
I know I had lots of big statements earlier, but he stinks. He stinks. That right there shows it. It was a ca- it was a castle of straw. It wasn't real faith. It was buzzwords. It couldn't stand when it came down to it. I don't believe. And it's safer for me just to wait for someday in the in the future where I ain't got to deal with it. Then believe you can resurrect something dead. Verse 40, Jesus says, honey, I told you, if you'd believe, you'd see the glory of God. And then he went, well, he went into it. 41, you know what he's going to do. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. 42, you always hear me. It's one of my favorite ways to start prayer meetings. You hear me. You always hear me. <laughs> I got your ear. And then he said, 43, Lazarus! come forth. And he had to say Lazarus because every tomb would have opened up and everybody would have walked out of their graves. (laughs) If he had just said come forth, old Bobby come up out of there. (laughs) They go, no, I wasn't talking to you, Bobby. You go back. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. This is what the gift of tears is all about to me. Lazarus is coming out of graves. I believe in resurrection. It's his name. It's his name. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I feel like God wants to do that. Who am I talking to this morning? I have a word out of Malachi I'm supposed to preach this morning. Malachi's on this house. There's a, there's a call to purify priesthood, to get back to the worth of his name. And there's three callings on this house. Marriage, finances, and the forerunner ministry. There's training and discipling in these. It's not just doing, there's and the very factor of the storehouse, Malachi 3.10, bring the tithes into the storehouse. There's a financial calling on this house. There's marriage, discipleship, and calling on this house. And the forerunner message. That's my message. I'll just give it to you like that. <laughs> Who am I talking to about resurrection? I want you to stand. Oh.